Let's get started. Our first speaker is Elaine Chu. Elaine is professor of digital media at Queen Mary University in London and a director of music initiatives at the Center for Digital Music, where she teaches modules in music and speech processing and operations research. Elaine is internationally renowned for her research on mathematical and computational models of music. She is a winner of the US Presidential Early Career Award and was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And she's also an accomplished classical pianist with solo and chamber music performances and CD, radio, and film music recordings. And I think we're going to be, uh, we're, <coughs> we're going to be lucky enough to hear uh, Elaine playing a little bit today. So please welcome Elaine Chu. Thank you, David, for the wonderful introduction. Uh, it, I'm extremely honored to be here today and extremely pleased to be here uh, uh, for Carol Crumb Hansel's um, book. And um, just before I begin, I have actually two mics on me, just to make sure that's all right. Okay. <laughs> okay, so um, I've titled my talk um, Tonality and the Choreography of Expectation. It was something less interesting before, but when I read the other speakers' talks and Carol's response, I thought I had to sort of in make it more interesting, and uh, so this is the result. So there's basically two things I'm going to talk about today, tonality and expectation. And I'll begin with a small example that I've recorded in the past. It's uh, Peter Child is a composer who's uh, currently chair of music and theater arts at MIT. And uh, he has written in the past a, a set of pieces for me based on songs from my childhood. Um, but I'm not going to be talking about those songs. I'm actually talking about another piece that was also written in the same set. It's the epilogue of the whole set of pieces called Doubles, and it was written in honor, um, in memoriam, for William Albright, uh, who's known for his ragtime music. So this is how the piece begins. And if you are a pianist and you're staring at a new piece of music that looks like that, the first thing you might do is think, wow, that's a lot of phrase markings. And what would one do with all those phrase markings? So that's the first bit. In the right hand. First phrase. Second. And the left hand has something entirely different, just to make it slightly more challenging. And you'd have to put it together. So those are the kinds of things that you have to pay attention to. The phrasing, which tells you where the segmentation boundaries are. Um, the dynamics. Uh, there's quite a few examples of contrasting dynamics here. Um, and also, because it goes from this hairpin in, uh, crescendo to a subito piano and another hairpin crescendo um, to a pianissimo, time needs to be taken 
to, uh, to show um, those contrasts and drops in dynamics. And here are kind of the high points that you might highlight in the playing of the piece. And because that final crescendo actually drops down to a pianissimo, you're going to need more time and might insert a comma. So that last one was... I'm getting ahead of myself. The piece goes on to here. <laughs> and Okay, the reason I can take such an extraordinary amount of time there is because you're expecting it to continue. And if I don't take that much time, I wouldn't be able to do as much of a decrescendo, a, as big of a contrast, if I did less time, if I took less time. It would just continue like this. But if I took more time, I could do more of that. And the reason I can do that at that point is because of tonality. And so this is, and I can show you the data that shows how much time I'm taking. Uh, this is a recording. Okay, that's the, that's the low point over there, where, whoops, over here, drum. and you can see that's also where the instantaneous tempo has this big dip and it's taking its time. And if we were to plot this instead of being in score time, where you can see it against the score, in performance time, where you can mark it against the, um, the audio signal, you can also see the dynamics. And um, that same dip back over there, this time you can see it corroborated by the dynamic change in the signal. Okay, so with that introduction, we'll start with Carol's book. And the reason um, I'm especially grateful to Carol is because she is one of the people that has actually created a system of methodologies to measure the effect of tonality and to quantify it in ways that now, um, to quantify and represent it in ways that can be studied. And she's one of the first people to have a systematic collection of methodologies documented in a book um, that shows, that gives us examples of empirical methods for validating and verifying knowledge about tonality. And this is documented in her book, Cognitive Foundations of Musical Pitch. This book has been inspirational to me and um, extremely important in the formation of my dissertation and the ideas that followed. 
Um, other people have benefited from Carol being one of the first people to set foot on this trajectory, uh, including David Temperley, who, who introduced me earlier, and uh, Fred Lodal, who will speak after me. And um, more recently, I finally published a book, um, partly because books don't really count in engineering. You kind of have to bide your time until you're more established, and then you can do whatever you want. Maybe I shouldn't say that on tape. Okay. <laughs> and um, one thing that impressed me about Carol is when I first finished my dissertation in 2000, I sent her a copy. And within three days or thereabouts, she replied. She had not only read my thesis, she commented on it and quoted from it. And I was so, I, I mean, I was thrilled. I don't think many other people had read my thesis to that level of detail. And not only did she read my thesis, she was also kind enough to read my book recently and is one of the people to actually um, review it on the back cover. So hers is the first one up there. And so it's only right that I return the favor and honor her in this way and uh, speak at this celebration of her book. So I'm going to begin by giving a very quick overview of some of Carol's work, and I know most of you already know this, so I'm going to go quite quickly. Um, she has, in her book, there's some seminal contributions in the representation of tonality, in key finding, and in visualization. Um, in representation, we have, from music theory, the tonettes, and this is what the tonettes looks like. This is what music theorists use um, in neo-Romanian music theory. And this is used to chart chord transformations. And at the same time, uh, in artificial intelligence, um, cognitive science, Longit Higgins had proposed a similar representation of musical pitch called the harmonic network. Um, and so between these two, um, they're kind of, they're isomorphic. They're, they're basically, there's a direct mapping between one to the next. Um, oh, I'm sorry. There's direct mapping from one geometric representation to the other. And at that time, um, not at that time, a few years after that, um, um, Roger Shepard also came up with some geometric representations for for musical pitch. Unlike these other mo models, which were devised theoretically, Carol came up with a new way of coming with devising a representation that came from empirical data. And this is the result of um, some studies she had done with, Kess this is the Crumb-Hensel and Kessler probe tone profiles that um, David Temperley already mentioned, and these are derived from users rating the closeness of pitches after, given, after being given a, um, a context. And based on these profiles, um, Carol came up with representations that showed percept, perceptual closeness between pitches, between chords, and between keys. And this inspired me to do something similar with the harmonic network that Longit Higgins had been working with. 
And this is Longit Higgins Harmonic Network, also you could call it the tone nets. And here, if, if you notice that the two Ds are repeated in the days, the good old days of transparencies, you would wrap up this sheet, put the two Ds together, staple it, and you will get a helix. With the helix, you would then have an interior on which you can then map different representations of pitches, chords, and keys. And now, similar to the pitches, chords, and keys that Carol had um, described in her book, um, you can do that, that for both major as well as minor chords and keys. Um, in a parallel vein, um, Fred Lerdahl had also come up with representations for pitch classes, chords, and keys which um, I expect he would be speaking about in the next talk. And there's direct parallels between all of these models. It's not surprising because they're all modeling the same things. So now moving on to key finding. With the key profiles, major and minor key profiles, we can then take a melody, map the durations to a vector, and compute the correlation coefficient between this vector and any of the 12 major keys and the 12 minor keys. And then the, the winning key, the one with the highest correlation, would then be the key of the melody. Um, the weights that Carol and uh, Carol Krumhansel and Kessler had come up with were also slightly modified um, in a whole series of tests. And they're documented um, in a humdrum, um, in a humdrum extra and humdrums created by David Huron, who just spoke earlier. And so that is for key finding using Chrome-Hansel's method. And that also inspired me to think of ways to come up with key finding using the harmonic network. Uh, Longett Higgins and Steedman had used shapes in this harmonic network to represent major and minor keys. And when you see a melody, you map that melody to this representation and figure out which shape then encapsulates all the pitches that are in the melody. So now we can do the same with the spiral array. You take whatever's, um, now instead of a shape, you have a 3D um, volume. And any melody can be mapped to a point in the center of that space and then compared to the closest key from which you would then get the identity of the key. And once you have a way of getting a volumetric shape inside the space, we, we can generalize this to not only key, um, the usual major minor keys, but any cluster of pitches can also generate any cluster. And we have now two different clusters. Any two clusters now has a distance each cluster summarized by a point inside that cloud. And whenever there is a piece of music that uses pitches from cluster A and then cluster B and then cluster A, and this is sort of a structure of the piece, at the point at the boundary, the pitch classes before that boundary and the pitch classes after the boundary generate centers that are most distant. And you can see a peak in the distance between that, those centers. And therefore, we now can take this method and use it to generate 
data that tells us where the boundaries might be, might be in a piece of music. So now we have a way of figuring out where the boundaries are um, in, in a separate project called Salami that originated here at McGill University. Um, they've had uh, hundreds of pieces annotated by two listeners each where um, these are the structural boundaries at uh, annotated by two different listeners and in work by one of my PhD students, Jordan Smith, he's done the same for different parameters, not just tonality, and tonality is the top one up there, but sort of rhythmic features, um, timbre features, a number of other features at different time scales to figure out what was changing at those boundaries and therefore try to explain what might be the reasons for perceiving boundaries at those points in time. Um, in the flip side, um, looking at the problem a different way, if we have boundaries and we know those are boundaries, um, can we then determine what people were paying attention to at that time if there were changes in certain features? We can then say, well, if timbre is changing at that point, maybe the person was paying attention to timbre. And uh, so this is towards a model of explaining a perceived structure. And the third part uh, has to do with visualization. Uh, this is work that Krom Hansel did with Petri Toivainen in 2000, where um, they used self-organizing maps to map um, pitches to key space and visualize where it is in that space. And these are some visualizations that have been generated. And this is comparing um, the spiral array and uh, Carol and Petrie's visualization. So, didn't quite time it just right, but you get the idea. So Packable's canon is written on a ground base, so the same chords are outlined over and over again, and you can see that in both visualizations. Okay. And um, you can see that that's a way to visualize music um, in real time. And um, this is an app that uh, has been released by Alexandre Francois, who programmed it. Um, it's a free Mac app, and um, the same visualization system, MuseArt, has been used in concerts um, in various places. Okay, so that's tonality. Now moving on to expectation. If we have time, we will do the happy birthday, but given that we're moving ahead right now, I'd like to move on to PDQ Bach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is again harking back to uh, David Huron's work on expectation, and where he looked at four CDs of Shikali's music, 
um, and, and counted 629 instances of audience laughter and classified them into nine categories, nine reasons for inducing audience laughter. And amongst these reasons are quite a few that have to do with tonality. And I'm going to demonstrate that in PDQ Bach's The Short-Tempered Clavier, written in all the keys except for the really hard ones, and it has an index number of 3.14159. <laughs> okay, so this is prelude number one in C. It goes like this. And it ends with Okay, so as you can expect, the first bit is doing very expected things around the key. And it does very nice tight little squiggles around the key. And in the end, when it does the It does the swing southwards. And that's the swing southwards, and here's the video. Okay, and this is another example. PDQ Bach, short tempered clavier, fugue number two, based on. Okay, and. Okay, so he does something funky there. And when he does that, you can see it's shooting up to the wrong key area, to that E natural, and it does this weird flying away trajectory. Okay, so that's unexpected things in composition. So now let's look at performance. How does tonality actually affect performance? It affects composition clearly. It also affects performance quite integrally. Um, so here in an analysis of um, three performances of the Moonlight Sonata, um, I mapped out the instantaneous tempo, tempi of three different performers, Daniel Berenboim, Maurizio Pollini, and Arthur Schnabel, and this is what it looks like. Um, you can see that Arthur Schnabel actually took it much faster than the other two players. But also, Arthur Schnabel's performance has some very clear hierarchical arcs. You can see these arcs in the tempo data. You can also see larger scale arcs in the data. Another larger scale arc, which also leads to another level of uh, an even larger scale, a higher, hierarchically higher level arc. Um, one might think, well, why did he do that? And why did he choose to do this kind of a grouping? If you look at 
the day, um, the score. It's sorry, I'm not going to do it pianissimo, just for demonstration purposes. at this point. Another key change. And to be minor. So if you look at those colors, the color-coded keys, and you map it onto this, you'll see that he's actually outlining all the key changes. And this is what his performance sounds like. So the performance can be used to indicate the structural boundaries and tonality. And I'm now going to move on to another way to play with expressiveness in performance that has to do with tonality, but does not have to do with this kind of structural boundaries. Um, and I'm, in particular, I'm going to talk about a, uh, a kind of stretching of time that I call tipping points, um, and borrowing from the book Tipping Points, um, the, and a definition of tipping points. Um, I call it a timeless moment of suspended stillness, of stasis beyond which a small perturbation will tip the balance and set in motion the inevitable return of the pulse. So it's kind of like when a dancer is suspended at that moment that's timeless, and then falling into the next, next beat. And um, the example I'm going to play is from um, a performance of Strauss Burlesque, actually my performance of Strauss Burlesque from 16 years ago. Uh, so there are things that I would do differently now, but this is for illustrative purposes. And 
Here you're going to see two tipping points that have been outlined. Okay, so the whole point of this, this is from the cadenza. The whole cadenza is an elaboration of the dominant going back into the tonic. It's going. And it goes. But anyway, you get the idea. So that's it's that whole dominant idea. And you can see other performers also do that. The big tipping points. Um, I won't go through this example. But now that's um, with knowledge of these kinds of tipping points that have to do with tonality or sometimes nothing to do with tonality, uh, what, can, what we can do with the modeling of expressive performance is we can introduce a style note, a choice note um, this is a typical graphical model for modeling timing in performance that has different layers. And until now, um, the models that exist haven't incorporated a style node that allows the performer choice in making these kinds of extravagant gestures. And these extravagant gestures can be made, these are decisions made on the spot and have to do with tonality or not. And with a stylistic note, we'd add another layer, an operational layer that allows the performer to have that choice of deciding whether or not to introduce something unexpected and different on the moment. And with this model, we are hopeful that we'll be able to capture much of these kinds of expressive uh, nuances. And with that, I conclude. <laughs>